This is a National Arts Center podcast. Welcome to the We Love Canadian Music Podcast. I'm your host, NAC Presents Executive Producer, Heather Gibson. We Love Canadian Music brings you up-close and personal interviews with Canadian musicians on far-ranging topics from life on the road to the artists they find most inspiring. Join us every two weeks for a new interview. Dene singer-songwriter Leela Gilday writes warm and effortless folk pop. In May 2019, I spoke with her about the challenges of the music industry, how institutions can create a more welcoming space for Indigenous people, and her newest album, North Star Calling. Here is some of that conversation recorded for a live audience at Canada's National Arts Centre. How did you get to music, doing music professionally? How did that happen? Um, I think... I've always loved music, and my dad, as I mentioned, is a musician, so um, he raised my brother and my sister and I um, singing from the time we were babies uh, as well. My mom used to sing quite a bit as well, although as the years go by, she's, she's more of a, a fan than an artist now. Um, I started performing in choirs, in like school plays, and then my first solo performance was when I was eight years old at our local festival. And I kind of stood up, um, my, I had to audition for the, the piece that I was performing. And I remember there was like a panel of local musicians, like musical stars in Yellowknife evaluating me and I forgot all the lyrics to my song. <laughs> and they still put me on stage because how adorable is like an eight-year-old little Dene girl in a puff sleeve dress that my mom got for me from Paris. And then, and like, um, uh, you know those socks, those sport socks with the blue stripes? Fully right up to here, and then a pair of moccasins. That was my own. <laughs> There's like still photos of me from the, on my website. Anyway. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I started. And I, I loved um, singing. I, I loved songwriting from the time I was young. I did go into opera and studied opera and got a degree um, in music, which was amazing, um, but songwriting really pulled me back to my roots, and that's kind of where I uh, found my identity and have taken many years to explore that. I think that today is a special day because one of the best songs that I've ever written is being released today. So I'm finally like, I feel like check. I'm <laughs> When you decided to to uh, become a professional musician, is that has that been a, a relatively straight and clear path for you? Decided this is what it is, or do you have you veered back and forth in, into whether this is for you or not? Um, it's the only thing that I um, do that feels um, completely natural and completely in the moment in terms of an occupation. Um, I've done a lot of things throughout my life. Um, you know, I have been full-time in music for almost 20 years, but I've also done other things during that time. Um, you know, I have a strong sense of 
social justice. And I think that's just being born uh, an indigenous person and being kind of raised in the um, environment that I was raised in. Um, I have a, I, f I feel um, an impulse to address issues of social justice within our own community and within the larger community in this country and sometimes in the world. So that's kind of, I have been pulled towards like, well, what does music really do? But then there's other times where I, I see the impact that my music has had on people and on their lives. And that, to me, says, okay, what you're doing is correct and um, valuable. And so when you talk about social justice and, and where you come from, is there anything in particular right now that, that you're feeling strongest about? Yeah. Um, man, that's a tough question because there's so much, right? So, like, three days ago, a young girl in Yellowknife was found dead on the Framework Trail. And um, she was a relative of my son's. And, uh, 15-year-old girl, 15-year-old uh, Denag girl, and why? Like, why does this happen? So there's lots of things that I feel um, need to be addressed, but one of them that kind of looms large in my eyes is, um, is healthcare outcomes for First Nations people. So that's kind of been like a, a recurring theme throughout my life and throughout um, my music is... Uh, starting from way back, my, my grandmother, um, my mom's mom, I never knew her because she passed away when my mom was five years old. And my, my grandmother got tuberculosis and because there was no treatment for her in Delaney during that time, they took her away from the family and brought her to Fort Simpson to the hospital and she passed away there without ever seeing her family or her kids again. Um, there's uh, an instance of um, flash forward to um, 2018, um, a gentleman by the name of Hugh Papik uh, in Klavik in a small community in the Northwest Territories goes to the health center and presents to the health center he doesn't feel good. And the nurse at the health center tells him, you go home, you're drunk, you take a, a Tylenol and go to sleep, you're drunk. And he goes home and dies because he had a stroke. And the bias that that person in the front line had impacted his life irreversibly. Um, now these are things that I've worked a, a long time towards uh, addressing. It's all about improving um, awareness and education and all about examining bias. And that's, I think, been a recurrent theme in my music. Um, I'm not just a musician because I love singing. I'm not just a songwriter because I love writing songs, although those are both true statements. Um, I, I am obligated to address and um, try to educate people about the things that impact my life personally and the lives of Indigenous people personally. And so I guess that's what it is. It's making things personal for people, you know. And so when you speak about bias, have you, do you feel that bias in your, your people dealing with you musically every day? 
or otherwise, not even just musically? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I have experienced racism in many um, aspects. Um, just being, just looking like I do. Um, I definitely have experienced that in my career. Um, I have experienced a lot of uh, misunderstanding and uh, I guess people wanting to, people putting their own um, expectations and judgment on me without really knowing me or my music. So I know of a, a festival that shall be unnamed that uh, one of my friends, unbeknownst to the director of the um, festival, was a board member and in discussing my application to the festival uh, said, oh yeah, Lila Gilda, yeah, she's not really, we're looking for an indigenous person, she's not really Indian enough. Like, and so she will never hire me for her <coughs> festival. And um, this, because of this, then my friend came and, and I said, I really don't know why I can't get into this one festival. I mean, I've experienced a lot of rejection just on the basis of being a musician, because that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the gig. So, um, but in this one case, I know that that's uh, you know a, a bias thing. Um, yeah, I think that there's there's other aspects of that that come into play. Um, I think as presenters, and we talk a lot about this at panels, at festivals, and um, I think presenters are the climate is changing quite a lot. Um, but there are still presenters of, um, of, of the arts that will sort of look to just check the box and have a kind of a pan-Indian or pan-Indigenous um, view of, the, of what an Indigenous art, an artist is or what Indigenous art could be. So not really um, saying, oh, well, we, we're bringing this other act, so we're, not, we're good for Indigenous acts. We're, we've checked that box for this year. So, we just announced the other day that we have this um, new Indigenous Theatre Department. I don't know if you saw that announcement. Yes. And these guys sitting Yay. over here. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and part of what uh, we're sort of internally calling um, the indigenization of the National Arts Centre. Mm -hmm. And so this is a big question. Um, you know, for you coming to perform here, because you've been here a number of times, what would be sort of a... a key or priority that you would say to us would, would make it, uh, an artist feel welcome here, um, Indigenous artists feel welcome here, be a part of that indigenization, what, what would be a key thing for you? Um, I think one of the, I have been here quite a number of times and I've always been very well treated, like I have to say that the National Arts Centre for the most part, has been very conscientious in uh, acknowledging my needs as an Indigenous artist, in accepting any kind of creative direction that I want to bring forward, and that feels good. That feels um, that feels right. Um, one thing that I do see, and I think this is a, a common thing for uh, festivals and theaters around the country, is that um, it'd be nice to have local involvement, um, a local elder come to greet the artist or um, a, a local group be invited to any 
production. Um, I'm not sure that, I mean, maybe I'm speaking out of turn here. Is that already something that you have on your radar and already something that's being done? I don't, I don't think it's a universal approach between disciplines. Okay. I mean, part of, part of the, you've always been here either with the scene or with my department, right? Yeah. Yeah, you haven't been with the others in any way. Yeah. So I think that's one of the things is that we all operate a little bit differently. Right. Um, right. So I don't want to speak at a turn for my, I'm looking over here because I see theaters sitting here. Um, but in my department, that's not the, that's not mm -hmm. the, the uh, natural, we mm -hmm. don't do that by rote kind of thing. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the, the land acknowledgement is a good first step. Like, that's, um, that's becoming more common, and I like that very much. Um, it is an easy first step. There's um, a number of, like, uh, a book that was written, Crystal Fraser and Sarah Komoneski, uh, in Alberta. It says 150 steps, the easy steps towards reconciliation. And that's something if you're, as an individual, because really it comes down to individuals. Um, the Arts Centre uh, is, is an overall organization, but it's comprised of each one of you, each one of your histories, each one of your biases. Um, so if you, in reading these 150 Acts of Reconciliation, if you could implement them in your daily life. Another thing that would be great is... Um, having the art center do a blanket exercise. Um, we were chatting a bit before, um, before the uh, talk, and uh, the blanket exercise, for those of you who are not familiar with it, is basically the history of this country um, as it really was. And um, it's not necessarily what you learned in school. There's lots of events that you learned about in school. Um, but a lot of it was left out. And so it's kind of a crash course in what actually transpired during, before and during colonization. And we're still in a, a colonial system. Like, we're not, this is not post-colonization. Um, but this blanket exercise is uh, generally led by an elder. It's, very, uh, it's a very visceral um, way to kind of experience or have an inkling of the actual history of this country and, the, and to understand the foundation of our relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. Because without understanding the actual history, um, it's all rhetoric, you know. It's, I mean, it's really great to make um, friendly overtures and uh, to, um, I think, changing our relationship really is going to come down to making friends and really understanding and loving one another on a personal level, but a fundamental change will require you to learn the actual facts. And I think there is a lot of, I don't think, there has been a lot of whitewashing of the, the true history of this country. And that forms the way that I view the walk through the world. It forms the way that you walk through the world. You know, this is not... Uh, a theoretical thing, and um, often non-Indigenous people are not, don't feel that they're impacted, like maybe feel kind of sad, feel kind of sad for the history, but don't feel personally impacted by um, the hist history of the country. Yeah. But very it does often, impact. Well, and very <laughs> often not, just don't know. Yeah. I mean, you and I have shared this story of, of um, my, uh, my best friend who passed away last year was an Indigenous woman who was part of the 60s scoop. 
and all the girls that we grew up with didn't know that. And uh, and then when we had had a few drinks after the funeral, none of them knew what a residential school was. Yeah. And it's just simply because we hadn't been taught. Yeah. And they're now in a position in their lives that they wouldn't be receiving that information like I am now in this yeah. sort of way. But so those kind of stories, I think, too, is like you say, people feel sad for the, the history of it, but sometimes they just don't actually know. And so I don't know how to ask this question, but I just know that we were joking around that I just throw in the word Indian Act somewhere and you want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> there's, no good, there's no nice way to ask a question about the Indian Act, but I know that it's something that, that you have a lot to say about. The Indian Act! <laughs> I have a play that I want to pitch you. No, just kidding. <laughs> I'm totally. Uh, yeah, so that forms the basis for the relationship between the government of Canada and the Indigenous peoples in this country. So there's a couple things when we talk about uh, reconciliation. Um, there's different aspects, there's a zillion aspects of it, but you really got to differentiate between the personal and the governmental relationship. So you can move forward in your personal commitment to reconciliation, um, and there's no obstacle to that. But in terms of moving forward with the, the governmental, the nation-to-nation -nation relationship, we are still stuck in uh, a patriarchal relationship. And this all goes back to the Indian Act in 1876, where the Indians became the white man's burden. And that was the whole the whole attitude that formed, the, the whole policy that formed the, every attitude that the government of Canada has had towards Indigenous nations since that day until now. The government continues to spend millions of dollars, billions possibly, fighting land claims in court. There was a case of a young girl who needed her teeth fixed. Um, she needed expensive dental work done um, because her teeth were all messed up from lack of nutrition. She was on a res in Alberta, I believe. This happened four years ago. And the government spent over $120,000 fighting that bill in court. More than it would have cost to actually pay for the dental work. Um, and these are just small examples of an attitude built on the foundation of this policy, this Indian Act, was made to control every aspect of Indigenous people's lives. So if you were a person on a reserve back in 1890, you would need permission from your Indian agent to leave the reserve. You, you would need a written note to go out and into the world. Um, there's, it's mind-blowing that that it's had so few revisions. So it hasn't changed much. Hasn't changed much. There have been some modifications. There has been, you know, through the efforts of First Nations, there have been, you know, lobbyists and people who and people in power who have changed, made some legislative changes. But um, it's still in effect. It's still the whole policy for how we relate with the government of Canada, and. If you, you know, there's a whole rhetoric about, oh, Indians get all this money, they get everything paid for. Well, that's bullshit. The, if you look at how much money they spent to educate an Indigenous child versus a non-Indigenous officer of child, it's almost half. It's like, like it's, I don't know where this idea comes from that 
you know, we get everything handed to us. Just the health statistics. And, and these are all things that, like, everybody that I know is fighting in every way that they know how to try to address uh, the state of our relationship with this government and um, to try to make things good for our children, for our families. I'm really sorry to get emotional about it. Um, and I know it, it seems like, sometimes it can seem like, what can I do, right? Uh, and truthfully, the best thing that you can do is stuff like this, is come and listen. You have to listen and be an ally. You have to recognize your role in this history and, um, and acknowledge the framework from where we all stand. So what does it mean to you to be an ally? Is, you know, to recognize and acknowledge, is that, is that enough allyship? Is it, what is the, what's the, if, the national, if you were to say the people that work at the National Arts Center are true allies of the Indigenous people, what, what does that look like to you? Um, I think it looks like this. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that um, allyship to me is, uh, is really prioritizing and uh, Indigenous voices. So not speaking for us, not saying, not making policies like, we're going to do this, but actually getting an Indigenous person to say, I think this is a good idea. Um, let's go this way. Um, so it looks like this conversation. I think, too, that, that one of the things... Oh, thanks. <laughs> That's Anna. That's allyship. Right there. <laughs> I'm just heartless up here. I have no place. I'm nothing for you. Frickin' Heather. <laughs> she makes me cry every time. I don't know what it is. It's Not true. For me. It's true. I think the last few times I've seen it, you burst into tears. <laughs> we had a very emotional relationship. <laughs> and normally I'm left sitting like this wondering what I've done. <laughs> Forget what we were talking about. <laughs> um, I'm just going to look and see what time it is here because I know that there are some people here that maybe, um, if you're willing, that we would take some questions from. Yeah, I'm, I'm completely open to that. And uh, oh, I did want to talk about my single actually. Yes, first. please. Not the fact that I'm single because I'm not single. <laughs> <laughs> I had to rename my post this morning because I'm like, that looks newly single. <laughs> no, new single. <laughs> Uh, so the first, uh, as I mentioned, it's called Kenta Natseju, and it's the first song that I've released to the pub, to the world in this way for, in five years. So I've gone through like a lot of personal, you know, toils and tribulations and um, trials and tribulations, and so it came to me at you know after a while. And this song is about healing within our own communities. So it's Kenta uh, Natseju means healing in my language. So in um, and when we talk about, there has been this big dialogue about reconciliation, about repairing our relationships between non-Indigenous and Indigenous people. It's awesome. Like I, like my, I'm half settler, so my in my family, like we have these conversations too. But 
sometimes what gets overlooked is healing within our own communities, so healing within our own families, and that, that's reconciliation as well. So um, with the residential school, the children were taken away from the family and did not learn the traditional values, parenting values, um, or even skills, right, to properly raise our own families. So um, there's a lot of dysfunction that has arisen from that. And so you see a lot of stuff like the lateral violence, like the crazy cross-cultural appropriation stuff that's been happening. I don't know if anybody's seen that whole, you need the katajak thing. That's okay, yeah. We can talk about that later, but. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of lateral violence that happens. And so this song is about healing those relationships. And I'm really, I had like a group of people come in to sing in this friend choir. And it's just like, Oh, it just makes my soul sing. So. And so people who aren't that familiar with music, you sing in your own language or you sing in... Um, I'm still learning my language, so that's one of the things. Is My mom went to residential school, so she never spoke English until she was 10. And, um, and then after that, I mean, she still speaks uh, our language, but she never taught us how. Um, and because she was basically brainwashed to think that English would it would be better just for us to learn English, that it would be a disadvantage to know our language. So, um, so I'm still so long-term. Just my cousins and my friends, and uh, it's something that's been actually, um, I, I want to start taking a course, um, but I haven't moved. I think I have a mental block against it. Anyway, so, but I have tried to use through my music, learn some phrases of my language because that's like a cool way to. There's a power in, in words, right? There's a power in language, so um, this phrase is a really good one. You know, I have to say, I actually think it's really interesting evolution that there's a cross cultural, um, that those things are starting to. It, for me, in a way, as a queer woman, when those things start to happen within your own community, it's happened in my community of. Um, using the right words uh, mm -hmm. for trans and for mm -hmm. and that whether or not those of us who are old and experienced the 80s trauma of 80s and like 60s right. to 80s trauma of being queer and coming out, there's many of my peers who aren't accepting. They're they're less accepting than they yeah. they perhaps were back in the 80s, mm -hmm. and uh, and they're less accepting of new people into the community. And so I think that when communities evolve to a point of having those conversations is actually a really positive thing. Mm -hmm. So not that this is cross-cultural yeah. with the, it's a Cree woman. Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, so people don't know, a Cree woman is singing, uh, is throat singing, and uh, you're laughing. <laughs> a Cree woman. It's a freaking fiasco, man. It's a fiasco. <laughs> but it. I think it's really interesting that, that the, the conversation has gotten to a point that we can have that conversation, your yeah. community can have that conversation of yeah. being just like, this is not cool. Yeah. And we're, how do these things, you know, what, did, what, are we, what are we comfortable with as a community rather than um, just, well, you know what, that's, it's, it's all right, let her do her thing, let mm -hmm. her figure, you know, her own stuff out. There's more. Anyways, I just think it's an interesting conversation. That's an interesting so, parallel. So she's, she's nominated for a couple of awards. Yeah, with a, an award. A, sorry, an, an award, not a couple. <laughs> um, and the, and what, which? The Indigenous Music Awards. Right. You can tell I'm paying attention to the indigenous music. I would like written them off no, because yeah. of this, which it's I think is what's difficult. happened. So, so the um, we can talk about this. So the the background is that this woman in Edmonton learned how to throat sing a few years ago. Taught herself from videos of Tanya singing, 
and uh, decided that um, she wanted to include it in her, in her artistic practice. And so she recorded a track of music of this, it's called Throat, um, and then subsequently has been performing Throat singing without an um, inner in sight, like there's nobody. Um, and so some throat singers, including Tanya, reached out to her and asked her to cease and desist, and she did not, and then she blocked them, and then she got nominated, so they asked the IMAs to uh, withdraw her submission or to um, make her ineligible. Um, and so it's, and they kind of decided that the, the Inuit collective of women was bullying this woman, and then they, they doubled down on that, and it's really at a point where they should apologize for their reaction to um, what is essentially a collective of women standing up for their own cultural heritage. Right. And um, I don't know, I, I can't comment on what this uh, Cree woman is doing because I don't know her personally, although I do know some of her friends and I, I feel like she should really reconsider. And so the conversation about appropriation within what's, you know, from the outside yeah. people think it's the same culture. It's really yeah. not. Well, this is the thing is that it's, it's one thing to share throat singing, like, with your friends and to have fun and learn, like, have your Inuk friend teach you to do it and try to, it's hard, like, it's really I'm hard. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> no, we should definitely not I've try about trying. right now. <laughs> I've thought about trying and then I'm just like, no. Yeah. <laughs> But it's another thing to monetize it, like to put it on your album and have people buy your album and take the space of other artists who are trying to, you know, make a career out of what they do. So. Right. Okay. Anyway. Well, thank you very much for doing this, and uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate your openness and honesty. Thanks, Heather. Yeah, I'll see you. And uh, I'll try not to make you cry next time. <laughs> you will make me cry. I know you will. I'll see you, everybody. Thanks for listening to We Love Canadian Music. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast. We hope you'll give NAC Presents a like on Facebook and find us online by searching for NAC Presents. This has been a National Arts Centre podcast. Send us your comments and questions. Email us at nacpodcasts at gmail.com. Visit the podcast section of the iTunes store, where you can rate and comment on this podcast. We love to hear from you. Remember, you can find more great NEC podcasts at necpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Centre on iTunes and subscribe for free. Until next time, goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre.